Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. It's wonderful to have you all back to our Lead to Succeed podcast. And today we have Brendan Baker with us. Now, Brendan is a prolific author. He has two best-selling books. And he is an expert in leading change. So a very big welcome to you, Brendan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So Brendan, let's hand over to you just in this first instance. Maybe just chat a little bit about your books and a bit more about yourself. You're from Australia. Not sure which part of Australia you're in and how you've become to be an expert in leading change. Absolutely. Well, I'll start with where, where, I, where am I in the world? Uh, so I'm in Canberra, Australia, uh, which which it's one of those places where it's the capital city, and yet no one seems to know where it is. It's it's fantastic. Uh, it's quite nice, a really nice part of the world. Um, I um, I absolutely love leading change, uh, but but in terms of how I ended up in change, I I always knew that I needed to have a career in something that had to find start and end and starts and ends. I, I needed that variety. I thrived on that variety and I, and I knew that fairly, fairly young. Um, and so I initially tried event management, didn't find a, a great fit there and um, found myself in a project office uh, and, and secured a graduate role and started there and, and essentially learned uh, the, the art of projects and organizational change and whatnot from the ground up. And, and then over the last, uh, X years essentially have worn almost every hat uh, in in that change arena, um, from supporting it to leading it to designing it to planning it to driving it to closing it up to reflecting on it to improving on it to almost every hat possible around it. Uh, I've just become obsessed. And and one of the th- the reason why I really nail in on on change leadership in particular and and why I founded my company uh, the Valuable Change Co is I found that change leadership was really one of the, the key determining factors uh, in whether or not a change succeeded or failed. And I mean, there's, there's multiple factors in there, but more often than not, it was the change leadership. When you have executive rolling, a revolving door executive leadership, or if you have a, a vision or a why that's, that's very flaky, um, and, and a few other factors in there, which I think we might start to touch on, um, your change is severely undermined and more often not will fall over when that change leadership is weak. And so I started to explore what, what makes strong change leadership and what are the key components? Uh, because I noticed that the industry is really good at getting very narrow and very deep. When we say project management, there are a million and one courses on project management and probably just as many certifications. And when we say change management, it's, it's similar. There's this way, there's that way, there's there's 30 different courses and you know you can have 30 different quali- qualifications and benefits management and, and all these other ways of slicing this up. But change, change leaders don't have the time to get narrow and deep. And so they, they're quite often, they're, they're essentially leading based on what they know. 
because they don't have the time to, to get in there. And so what I did, I boiled down what are these key effective components that a change leader needs and what do they need to know from across all of these areas and how do they drive this holistically, connecting people with process, with, with purpose? How do we connect these together, drive holistically and, and keep it really, really simple to actually achieve uh, successful change? And so that's, that's essentially what Valuable Change Co. is all about. And that's, that's what I've written in my latest book, um, Valuable Change, is really what are the key things that, that a change leader needs to know and need to be thinking about in order to achieve truly valuable change and, and successful change. Awesome. Thanks very much for the introduction, Brendan. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast. And you know, I think we're going to have some really interesting topics to discuss and get into in a second. Uh, one question I'd be curious to ask you to, to start things off in terms of like change leadership, do you think that's, is that like a new approach or like a different approach to leadership as a whole, or is it more of like a specific attribute to being an effective leader? I think it's a specific attribute or rather it's a component of uh, leading. Uh, le leadership is very broad. Uh, there's multiple ways to cut that. Um, but change is one of those things where it's, it's the old adage, right? Change is the only constant. And so change leadership is a crucial tool in every leader's tool bag, I guess is the way that I see it. Um, and, and they need to be, I guess leaders need to be thinking more often around, well, how do we actually drive the change? And how do we, how do I drive my own vision? And how do we connect that vision through to reality and translate that through, through our teams, through the broader organization? And what are the key tactics and techniques and, and what are the key questions that I need to be answering to do that? Nice. And I guess, especially we see in like a lot of organizations nowadays, you've got like so many startups, kind of businesses and technology, I imagine like changes happening kind of all the time. So what, what do you think are some of those ways to actually identify the change, implement it and actually kind of see it through to a success kind of in an organization? There's, there's a nice little way of thinking about this that I really like. Um, and I mean, maybe I'm biased because I like it. I wrote it in my book, right? Sure. Um, but really change happens in, change happens in ripples. Uh, and, and I mean, it's just this, it's the human dynamic. So, I mean, I'll, I'll have a question for you. Let, let's, let's take a minor detour here. Um, when, tell me about the last restaurant you went to, your experience at, at, at the last restaurant you've, you've recently been to. It was a French, what do you call it, a brasserie? Is that what? Yeah, it was. Um, the pronunciation. We did, because it was a birthday weekend. So we did go to one together uh, last week. So yeah, brasserie style um restaurant yes beautiful i'm jealous uh and if um let me ask you actually so the service staff how were they that's such a good question because we had real issues at the beginning but he oh there you go the manager really turned it around and we were very impressed with how he did it so okay so, so let's delve in deeper because normally i get an answer of yes it was great it was fantastic and then i have to play in the hypothetical but that this, this, you, there was that initial, uh, the service staff wasn't, weren't up to scratch on that. And, and so how did that affect your experience initially um, with, with that dinner? Well, we were thinking about leaving the restaurant, to be honest. We, Which would have, we actually said, well, yeah, I think to clarify it was because it was like an allergy thing, which oh, is yeah. like quite severe. Oh, okay. And it seemed yes. like people weren't taking sort of it too, too clued up, not taking it seriously, but I don't think they were quite clued up on I guess what we were asking or, or, or what the answer was. So at that point, for health reasons, we were like, maybe we should go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, understand. And so what, what we see there essentially is 
this surfer's, I guess, nonchalant attitude towards, towards the allergy um, has flowed directly onto your own experience and tarnished what would have been a really, uh, really nice night. I mean, it sounds like the manager may have swooped in and come to the rescue there, which is yes. good. But there was that initial ripple through. And, and there are other situations where maybe the server, you know, is, is being sarcastic or rude or whatnot, which, which I've personally experienced as well. Um, and that tarnishes your night. But it's entirely possible that it was actually the, the, the restaurant manager that was having the bad day. And yeah. they took that out on, on the servers who then took that out on the customers. And that's that ripple through effect. And, and it's, it's a simple illustration, but I've seen that exact same ripple at play on a $100 million project where the executive essentially didn't get the call right. They didn't care, to be honest. There was, there was a revolving door uh, and there were several, in fact, at one stage, there were three execs leading that over the space of two and a half weeks. It was that quick, the turnover in that space. Um, so there was this, this lack of care and that flowed through into the team that rippled through into the team. And we're talking about a hundred odd uh, people delivering that, that change, um, that flowed through. And so their momentum, their apathy, their morale, uh, essentially, you know, so their morale and momentum dropped and there was this high apathy that started to, to increase in there. And that rippled through into the broader organization and, and their key stakeholders and their customers that they were looking to change through this. And that ripple was very, very clear and so as a change leader, essentially there are these three ripples we need to be thinking about. The first ripple area being our core. And there are three, there are three questions that we really need to be answering in there. Um, and then the second uh, ripple area is our internal momentum. So our teams and, how, and their morale and their momentum and how do we, what strategies and techniques do we use there? And then the third ripple area is the broader organization. How do we leverage our influence and maximize our effort in that third ripple to, to essentially not waste, uh, not waste energy and time and, and be as effective as possible in that space. So I like the idea of that and, I can, and it's very visual and I can appreciate that. Could we touch on one of those ripples being the internal momentum? What do you mean by that, Brendan? So it's, momentum is one of those things that it's easier to feel than see. Uh, and I mean, if you want to call it morale, or if you want to call it something else, then go for it. But really, it's a team's propensity to, to move forward. And it's a team's, um, I guess, willingness and commitment. And, and it encapsulates a whole heap of things. But really, I like to measure it on two axes. If you imagine these in you know, an XY style uh, graph here, where essentially X is our energy. And Y is hope. And so we're really looking at energy and hope and the dynamics between them. And now I'll quickly define these terms. Uh, energy is closer to the way that I would define my five-year-old girl. She's full of energy. Uh, she bounces off the furniture. In fact, she fell off the bed because she was so energetic uh, last night. Um, and then the other one is um, hope. And hope is an optimism for the future and, a, and an optimism for our own place in that future. And so there's that alignment between self and, and goal and an optimistic view of it. And so when you're measuring and thinking in these two terms, uh, what I found is there tends to be a line in between them, if you plot a line in between, but it's, it's not a straight line. 
uh, it's not a, even as hope uh, increases, energy increases. Um, there is one before the other. It essentially it heavily leans hope first, and then you shift over and you maximize energy. And so, sorry. Yeah, is that because when we learn of change, we're in an organization, we hear about change, we are very hopeful that we are going to be part of it. We're going to be part of that change going forward. We're going to be included. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, so with, within this, uh, I mean, I call this the momentum path. Within this, there are five stages. The one in the dead center, so the third stage, is hopeful. And that's where we all naturally start when it comes to a change or even if we start a new job. We're, we're hopeful about the future. We're hopeful about what's going to, to come ahead. Um, now, there's two, when you're starting in the middle, there's, there you could either go up or down, right? And so let's quickly explore down and then we'll explore what, what great looks like. So underneath hopeful, uh, we have fearful and despair. They're the two stages below that. Now, despair is very, very low energy, very, very low hope. And I mean, we've probably all seen people um, in that situation. I mean, uh, what about yourselves? Have you ever been in a, in a position or a job where you have felt that sense of despair? I haven't felt despair, but I have seen it in others. Yes. Can well, I work in sales, so I'm always quite hopeful. But <laughs> um, I'm not sure I've not got to just despair at anything, and nothing nothing immediately comes to mind. But I I I kind of understand the with you going on. Yeah. Yes. So so I, I would suggest that you two are in the in the lucky uncommon there, which is great. Um, but despair really is characterized by people who feel like they are stuck. It's this sense of that they're not able to move forward. They're not able to move sideways. They don't know what to do. They need the paycheck or they need to be there for whatever the reason is. Um, and so they feel like they're stuck and there's nothing they can do about it. And there's this real sense of inaction. And so what they, what you will tend to see for people in despair is really high sick days, really high, um, you know, basically they're leaving even before they're meant to, uh, they'll do everything they can to maximize the time away from work and, and away from it. Um, and that there's a real lack of willingness to be there. So that's despair. Now, how do we pull people out of despair? And so this is one of the, this is a really interesting place because as, as managers and leaders, we kind of often think, well, how do we motivate this staff? They're taking all this sick leave. I can tell that they're not enjoying it. How do we motivate them? And in, in many ways, that's jumping three steps. Motivation is not the goal here. Um, what you need to do is you need to find ways to build hope. And so that's why we're leaning towards hope first on, on this axis. And so we're looking at when for someone in despair, you need to give them an excuse to change their mind. Because we humans don't like to change our minds. Once, we've, once we're set on something, we'd like to be right. We like to be set on something. Um, so you have to give them a reason. You have to give them an excuse to go, oh, look, it was rubbish. I was right. But now ever since that change, maybe it'll be different. And so you build that little seed of hope. And once you've built that little seed of hope and, and I mean, give them excuses, you can make a physical change, a new reporting line, entirely new work, new title. There's all different types of things you could do, but it needs to be a fairly physical style change. It can't be, uh, you know, here's a new report to write. It has to be big enough that it, it plants a reasonable size seed. Then perhaps you, you bump them up and they get too fearful. And fearful is characterized 
almost the same behaviors as those in despair, but there is that little seed of hope. They are rendered into inaction by their fears. And there's a whole bunch of those. I mean, I delve into those more into my, in my book, but really there's a few key ones, a fear of embarrassment, a fear of being cut down, a fear of, of um, even being you know, a wasted work or, uh, or even you know, being abused in terms of being too good and being taken advantage of. Uh, and there's, there's a few others, but there's, you're essentially in fear. And so what, the, the way to tactic fear is to build a culture of openness. Uh, in fact, in my newsletter, uh, just this week, it's coming out in a few hours, um, I, I write about radical honesty and I write about um, uh, building a culture of openness and how do we do this and, and what's, what's some of the factors in here. So anyway, so that's fearful. Above fearful is hopeful, which is where we all start and we're starting to build that hope. What about what success looks like? What's above hopeful? So above hopeful is motivated. And that's where we quite often think we want, we want our people to be motivated. And, and, and Daniel Pink and in his book, Drive, he's got some great components there, empowerment and, and a few others. Around, well, this is how we create motivation. And that, that's all highly effective. Um, but what, what we don't realize as, as leaders is that there's actually a stage above motivated. And that's fanatic. That is those people that are willing to maybe not stand on top of the building and call out your, your praises, but they are willing to be passive marketers for your change within your organization. And that's huge. That is absolutely huge because change is inherently painful and change is inherently scary. And so when you have people that are these, these passive marketers, um, I mean, that's, that's effort for, for nothing really, which, which is fantastic. So, so yeah, that's, that's essentially the art of momentum there. Well, a case, uh, Brandon, how do you find those people? How do you find those? I would call them raving fans, might, might be my term, but, you know, the passive marketers, as you call it, how do you find them? It's, so it's interesting. Um, so fanatics, uh, fanatics, uh, they're not necessarily people that you find. Um, they're actually they're people that uh, you can help build. And so there, there are two tactics that you can put in place here in terms of building fanatics. Um, so first of all, a fanatic needs to have a degree of positive disruption. And so positive disruption is essentially anything that's unusual, anything that's different. I mean, to give you a sense here, uh, the, the, I was working with a uh, large government client I, a, a few, that's probably yeah, over a year ago, um, and I mean, government very, very hierarchical uh, change there takes a long time. Um, Decision-making takes a long time. You've got to roll it up multiple levels. And one thing we did in that change was we essentially, we brought the, the top level exec, we brought him down and we made him highly, highly accessible uh, and essentially created what was a, an, issue an issue elimination meeting, an issue destruction meeting. And creating that immense level of accessibility and essentially this destruction meeting, anyone could bring an issue to it. Anyone could bring a problem to it and he would give them a decision on the spot, which was very, very different to the status quo. Immense, immensely different. And to the point where that positive disruption, it gave people something to talk about. It created some of that fanaticism and that passive marketing and that rippled through. And to, to the point where that exec was promoted six months later, but people are still talking about it. And I've heard about it in other departments. Uh, it has rippled that far that because it was that dynamic a change. So the first factor is positive disruption. You need, we need to be doing something that is positively different. 
And the second factor there is a sense of belonging. And, and I mean, that's really, at, that's, that's honing right in on that person's sense of optimism for themselves and, and in the future. And that there's tactics in there like strategic labeling and a few other things you could use, but um, essentially that you combine those two and that's how you start to build fanaticism. Now there is a, there is another, um, there, there is another group of people though, uh, that, that you essentially want uh, gunning for you throughout the organization. So if we think a little bit broader, if we think into that third ripple, uh, that, which is throughout the organization here, uh, that there is a third group and I call them internal influencers. And so these are the people that are hidden amongst our, within our organizations. But these are the people that essentially are the connective tissue of our organizations. And there's some really interesting science uh, in, 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 in place or rather that underpins that. Um, as a Harvard professor, um, uh, uh, Barabashi, Professor Barabashi, and he's, he's a professor of network science. And he has delved really, really deep into the science of it. Um, and I mean, reading his books challenges me, which is fantastic. And I really enjoy it because there's a heavy dose of solid mathematics in there. Um, but th that's that aside, what he's found is that, um, is that our all man-made organizations or human-made organizations, sorry, human-made networks uh, follow the same pattern. And that's a pattern of hub and node in that there are a really small amount of hubs which are responsible for the vast majority of connections to tons and tons of nodes. Now, to, to break away from the language for a tick, I'll give you a little picture of what that looks like. Have a think about how you use the internet. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if I asked you to go to my website, valuablechange.com, you'd probably, I mean, I'll ask you, how, how would you get there? Just put it in the search engine. You'd put it in the, the search engine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you, you pop it into either Google or Bing or, or something similar, probably. Mm -hmm. And so that these search engines are essentially the hubs for the internet. They are how we interact and how we get through to where we want to be. We, they are essentially the train stations, right? They're the connective hubs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that same pattern exists in our organizations because our society is structured the same way. It's the exact same. We have these connective hubs in our, in our society. So the art is, how do we find those Googles and the Bings and the Facebooks and the Amazons? How do we find those people in our organization? And how do we enlist them? Sorry. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, you're taking a sip of water, so I will interrupt you then if you don't mind. <laughs> it's, a, it's when they say, go to so-and-so, they've got all the answers. Is that the type of person you mean? The person that seems to know everything? It, that, that's, yeah, that's absolutely one component of it. So, so these people, what I found, tend to have one of two and often both traits. Um, the first is that they are a value adder. So these are the people that, I mean, it's not the Midas touch, but it is, uh, they add value to everything that they, that they approach, that they are actively involved in, to the point where people want to work with them. People want to be around them because they make their lives easier. And that's the first trait. The second one is that they are an information broker. And so as an information broker, they are that source of truth. Uh, you know, it's not always truth. Sometimes it's gossip, but either way, 
that they are that source of truth within their, their immediate connections. And so it's the relationship between those two levers that we tend to find these connectors. Now, the trick here is, well, how do we find them? Mm-hmm. Now, finding them is surprisingly easy. Uh, and a, a technique that I use is thinking, you know, value add and thinking information connector. There's a technique that I've essentially borrowed from the field of social sciences. So there's a, there's a, there's a technique in there called snowball sampling. And it really, it's, it's a rather simple technique. When you survey, you survey one person, and at the end of the survey, you ask them for three names. They give you three names. You then go and survey those three people and ask them for three names again, and it cascades down. And you end up with this giant, well, pyramid scheme, but you know, um, you, you end up with a giant pyramid. Um, now, what's interesting is that that's not going to solve it for us, but the reality of snowball sampling is you're going to get the same names over and over again. You're going to get these duplicates. And... It's these duplicates, it's these people that are overlaps that get nominated again and again. They're the people that are most likely the, the connectors. And so we, we can find these people with just two questions. The first question here is, if you could work on any project with any three people, who would they be? And the second question is, who do you go to for company news, for gossip, for updates, for everything you need to know about the company. And you ask those two questions and you you essentially then tally the results. And the more often a name comes up, the more likely it is that they are an internal influencer, a, a key connector within your organization. And they are the people that you then enlist as your change champions, that you then put the effort into because not only are they the most effective people, but they're also the most efficient way to get your message throughout the network of your of your organization. I we, we talked about this briefly ahead of the, the podcast, Brennan. I find I find this really interesting. And if so, so let's say when you've got, you've got these change champions that are highlighted at the end of this survey or whatever it might be, we actually I asked you this question ahead of time, but I think our listeners would find the answer quite interesting as well. Do you find that they're often like different to the people that are in those kind of like let's say leadership or sort of like more senior positions? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're, they're very rarely in those leadership positions. What, what, why do you think that is? It's, I, I think that's the nature of, of, what, of, of the role they're performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the nature of uh, who we're looking for as well. We, don't necess- we, don't, we already know who's in the leadership positions. Uh, and, and if we just wanted to enlist leadership, that's, that same, that's the top down. That's kind of the way it's always been. Um, what makes this cohort different is that we're actually looking for those um, those social influences, those internal influences that are peer level. And so, I mean, just the nature of the traits that we're looking for there, the value add and the, the key information and whatnot. I mean, leadership does come up mm-hmm. you know, when, when you run this type of thing. It does come up, but it's, it's normally the minority, not the majority here, uh, because what you're looking for is the people that are really those bedrocks, those key connections throughout. Got it. And so those change champions, are they the similar sort of people as like your, your change leaders or is this like kind of two distinct different categories of people? Uh, it's, it's a good question. Um, so something that I really, uh, that, I, that I really try to do is mm-hmm. I try to embed change leadership. And that's something that I help my, my clients do is embed change leadership. So I mean, when I'm talking about change leaders, I initially, you know, we think of ourselves, we're driving a change. These are the key things we need to have in place. We're thinking in ripples. We're answering key questions, generating momentum and, and leveraging influence. 
Um, but when you start to embed change leadership, and, and let's say, you know, let's look at this group of internal influencers. If you embedded that same change leadership component and change leadership thinking with those people, um, you're, you are going to maximize your, your success in that arena because a key part of change leadership is translating the, the purpose or the why through to the what and being able to communicate that. And that, I mean, that's that first ripple, which we haven't touched on much, but um, a key part of that is that translation. And when you're empowering your internal influences with the ability to do that translation between the why through to the, you know, what success looks like. And finally, uh, you know, what reality is going to look like and starting to look like, they're able to communicate that more effectively. They're able to think more in terms of momentum within their own areas, within their own connections and their own little pockets. And then you essentially create embedded change leadership. You create change leaders that are working as part of the broader whole and change disseminates more effectively. Thank you for explaining all of that. I've got so many insights and ideas and thoughts. We haven't touched on, I think it might be interesting to take a dive into Brendan, when the senior executive team decide they need to make a change. So we may have listeners here who run medium-sized businesses or small businesses, and they recognize they need to make a change in their organization. So what are some great tips that you would um, suggest for kicking off a change program so that it becomes valuable change, which is what you you are about? It is, absolutely. Um, Three things, three questions, rather, is, is where I recommend. Uh, and this is this is what I call your change call. First of all, you need to ask, you need to start with why. It's that Simon Sinek idea, start with why. But you really need to be asking, why are we doing this? Why, why do we need to change? Why, why, why? Start with why. You then don't then jump into what. Uh, we then jump into and how will I prove it? And start to do some future imagining in terms of you know, what does that look like and how am I actually going to prove that? If I were asked by someone else, was your change a success? Did you meet that and achieve that? Why? What would I put in front of them? What would I show them to demonstrate that, that it's changed? And it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, a report. Sometimes it's, I would walk around with them and I would feel that, 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 you know, employee momentum has changed or whatever the case, whatever the change is, but how would I prove it? And then the third question is, what exactly am I doing? what exactly are we doing? And under that third question is where you get um, all those delivery-based questions. How much is it going to cost? And, uh, you know, what's the scope of what we're doing? You know, when is it due? All of those things that we, we also typically default to. We always start with how much is it going to cost and when am I going to have it by? And, and, and what I'm saying is ratchet back a few steps and draw the connection through. In fact, a, a technique that I often use, and I call it a valuable question map, is get a piece of paper or a whiteboard, draw three columns on it. The first column is why, the middle column is proof, and the final column is what. Draw some boxes on there and connect it through. And doing that exercise, essentially it's logical mapping. And what that really quickly shows you is what parts of the what, what parts of the, were you thinking would would be included in this change are actually not needed. And, and what parts can you immediately cut out before you even plan them? And I mean, you talk about, I mean, I, I often hear people talk about scope creep. I hear people talk about 
um, you know, big behemoth projects and, and things like that. And this is a very simple way to start to eliminate a lot of that. And you eliminate it before you've spent any money on it, which is very nice. Is you do this lovely logical connection through why, proof, and then what. It also highlights those areas of the what that uh, fall under what I call the ego component. And so the ego component is those areas of a change uh, that, that a leader wants in a change just because they want it in a change, not for any other reason. Uh, and and it, it has sunk changes before. It is it has sunk organizations before, that ego component. Uh, and so doing a quick, simple exercise like this on a whiteboard quickly starts to show you which parts of these ego component don't actually connect in with what we're trying to do here. Can I just draw down a little bit further on that when we said the, the proof? So how would we prove that this change has been successful? Is, is that what you're saying? So it might be that staff turnover has reduced, for example. Yeah, that, that, yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So exactly right. Um, so it's really how, how, would we, how, how are we going to prove the why? Yeah. Is, is the key question there. It's, it's not, we're not proving that we delivered well. We're not proving no. that we delivered on time and on budget and all of those things. We're proving that we achieved the why. And that's why the flow is one, two, three, and what being the last component. Well, I think that's a great, uh, very simple exercise that all senior executives could do when they're going, before they even start a change management program or a change leadership program or a change in their business. So very effective. Like Absolutely. I'll offer a couple more tips in here uh, yeah, for your audience. Um, so when, when we're thinking about a why, there's a few things to think about in terms of there's a few common traps um, or a few ways to make it more effective. Uh, first of all, um, you don't want your why to just describe your what. Uh, and, and you're just, you know, repositioning your what is your why. I'll give you an example here. Um, you don't want your why to say, we need a new database because you're literally just listing out the what and you're calling it a why. Um, you don't want, uh, what you do want is you want the why to essentially start to paint a picture and you want it to be emotive and it needs to be based on reality. You also want to be avoiding jargon. So you don't want to be delving really deep. And I mean, let's say the why is legislative based or something. I mean, I'm based in Canberra, Australia, so I, I have a few government clients. Um, and so quite often I, I see with them, it's a mix between a what-based why and a heavily jargon-based why. And so when you start to strip the two out, when you take the what, go and put it in the column that it actually should sit in, um, you leave this gap and you essentially just ask, keep asking why again. If you're having trouble getting to your why, it's the old ask why three, four, five times. Why this, why that? And, and just scribble. And you will arrive at, oh, that's the why. Okay, pop it down. And then you start to think, well, how am I going to prove that? Do you find many... I guess like senior executives or senior leaders within an organization have like significant trouble mapping out that why and often confuse it for like a how or a what? Yes. Like, yes. I know you mentioned yes. it has happened, but is that like, would you say that's like a, something that happens like quite significantly? Uh, I would, yes, I, I would suggest um, almost 80% of the time when I first start mapping this out, uh, I end up with a what in the why column. Um, and it's just this human tendency. I mean, we just love to jump to solution. We do. Uh, but, <laughs> we just do. Yeah. Um, and, and I was like, I always have to do the manual exercise of pulling it over, pulling it over. And then occasionally I will get a proof in the why as well, uh, which is quite interesting. 
and, and it's that act of pulling that over as well. And that's the power of the three columns, right? Where you can actually just in front of them, let's say you were trying to communicate this or elicit this from your own senior, le senior leadership. Let's say, you know, you're mid-level. Um, use the three columns, put them up on a board. And when they give you a what, you know, don't draw it in the why, go and draw it in the what column. And that, that you're not overtly saying anything, but you're putting it in its right spot. And it immediately allows that click that, that immediate communication and um, they go oh yeah no okay that probably is a what okay well let's go back and let's think about why we need that and you get to the true why is underneath well you you talked right at the very beginning um we introduced you as an expert on change leadership and you've demonstrated that throughout this podcast i'm going to ask you a question about what are the three things you must not do when you're going through a change um i guess it'd be very tempting to say well um, don't not do all the things that I've talked about. But what are the three <laughs> biggest mistakes that you see companies make? The, the three biggest mistakes, um, the first one is shaky wire. Uh, and we've just talked about it, um, but in all honesty, it is, uh, is that the, the wire is really, really shaky. And so you're not able to rally people behind it. And, and, and so it's, it is absolutely core, it is absolutely fundamental. So get your wire strong and get that right. And get that right up front. Um, the second piece there is ignoring your team. Um, I mean, even the industry does that. You know, the industry ignores this whole team component, but you, but you can't ignore your team. There is no change without your people. And so it's, it's prioritizing your team and, and enhancing their capability and making them a consistent priority within your change. Don't always be externally focused. Uh, and the third component, which I haven't talked about here, um, but the third one is there is not learning as you go and not growing as you go. Um, quite often we see, I, I see changes that get to the very end and they, um, they only then do they think about, well, oh, what, what did we maybe learn through this? And then and by then half the staff have moved on to other projects. Uh, you know, maybe an exercise is done and a piece of paper gets thrown in a drawer. Um, and so you're really missing out on all of that learning and the opportunity to have that continuous improvement and continuous innovation throughout your change. Because change gives you a really interesting artistic license, normally within an organization. It's a temporary thing. And so it's an opportunity to experiment. It's an opportunity to try new things. And so don't waste that artistic license by just doing the same old. Try something new, create that positive disruption uh, and learn as you go. And so that, that's that third component. That's the third mistake. I've got, got a question for you on, on that aspect, Brent. In, in terms of, I think what you've shared has been like really valuable and I think it's important that people can actually like go in and implement this. So I'm sure some of the situations you've described are probably how some of our listeners are feeling. So in terms of like getting that why crystal clear, the how, and then learning as you go and implement and reflecting on the, on the learnings you've had, if you've got people in your team that feel in that kind of like despair or fearful column, what do you think is the best way of like, a, making that why crystal clear, but then also sort of like getting everybody on board with it and, and behind the idea. So I guess two, two things there. Um, first of all, get the why clear, as clear as you can yourself mm -hmm. uh, and, and do those double checks, you know, make sure you're not talking jargon, make sure it's emotive. Um, but ultimately your why will fall on deaf ears without that excuse for hope, without initially that, that feeling of, yeah, you know, Sure, the organization might be going in a great place, but I'm not part of that. 
I don't see myself as part of that, that future. And, and that's the connection that needs to be there in order to pull people out of despair and, and even fearful. And so you need to be thinking about, well, how do I give them an excuse for hope? How do I create something that's meaningfully different for them? And, and think in terms of that. Um, and then if you couple that with personal vulnerability and you couple that with uh, a propensity and very a strong openness towards learning, um, you can start to create some shifts. But, but I'll be honest with you here, they're not fast. Their shifts are not click your fingers done. It takes immense patience to pull someone out of that sense of despair. It is far easier to shift them on. Um, I'm not saying that's always the solution, um, but that is, um, that is the easy way out. But if you have an entire team, which I have seen, if you have 60 plus people sitting in despair, the solution is not to move 60 people on. It's to look at what is inherently wrong and how do, we, how do you foster a, a better environment within there? And you do that by giving them an excuse, but also, so you need that catalyst and then couple that with vulnerability and you couple that with openness to learning. Um, and you, you essentially, you show yourself uh, facing your own fears to help empower them to face their own. So would it be fair to say then, Brendan, that the pace of change is only as fast as the level of motivation um, and momentum of the team. Absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, and I wouldn't say that's the only only determining factor, but it is a key one that is often ignored. Yes. So we often, I have experienced change programs that don't actually come to conclusion because everybody gets so fed up with them. Um, so I think your point about keeping that momentum going is, is rather crucial in this and making sure people are feeling empowered and motivated during that process. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the other thing to think, keep in mind that when we're talking why is the other thing that I've seen is that changes that take too long. And the reason why the momentum is pulling back is because it actually no longer makes sense to do it. Yeah. And, and killing a change um, is one of the hardest decisions that any change leader can make. Yeah. So much so that I, majority of people that I see do not make that decision. They would, they would rather deliver a, a useless something than a cheaper nothing. Which kind of goes back to that point about being vulnerable, doesn't it? And saying, look, it's not worked out for whatever reason. Life's moved on. Business has moved on. So we are going to cull this change. Yes. Yes. And that, that's exactly it. Uh, and what you ideally want to be building in is this sense of validation of why. Yeah. If you know how you're proving success, then you should be able to test your why along the way as well. Yeah. And so you're testing the continual, the context around the change as part of your regular thinking. I mean, project reporting and change reporting is always obsessed with, well, how much does it cost? You know, these green, amber, red style metrics, um, you know, are we on track? Are we hitting our milestones? When we should also be asking, is this still valid? Should we still be doing this? And if you're asking that regularly, then it won't be a shock 12 months down the line where you have to tell the team that we're enthused, hey, this doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, you're asking it every two weeks. And so it's just normal. And so you would start to see the trend away and it would allow you to, to potentially pivot and then make, make sure you're delivering useful change. Very simple. Oh, you've shared so much with us, Brendan, and it's been hugely, hugely useful and appreciated. It's now an opportunity to ask you if there's anything you'd particularly like to share with our audience, how they might be able to reach you or any exciting projects that you've got coming up. Absolutely. Uh, so 
Variable Change Co. is is um, is my company, but so you can get me at variablechange.com. Um, I often say that I'm just an email away, and I truly am. Uh, any thoughts, any questions, flip me through an email. I'm highly, highly accessible. Um, my book, Variable Change, is out pretty much everywhere that you could buy books, hardcover, paper, uh, paperback. Um, now on audiobook too. Um, I, I'm I'm a father of two young girls. I don't get a chance to read. I listen to books in the car. So all of my books are in audiobook because I'm sure that I'm not the only one who, who is in that situation. Um, so audiobook as well. Um, otherwise, um, I have a weekly newsletter, uh, the Change Leader Weekly. You go to valuablechange.com uh, and you can sign up there. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, I think I, really, I think we ended it on a really nice note there because you said about kind of keeping it simple, which is sort of like what we were start, what we were talking about at the start of the podcast. I think, as you said, like the, the why, the how, and the what, and just kind of keep taking it back to basics. So yeah, as Mum said, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast, Brenda. I think you've shared like so much knowledge about instigating change and applying it within your organisation. Um, and there's some really really useful insights there. So thanks very much for taking the time to, to chat with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me on. So thank you so much, Brendan, and thank you very much for listening to this week's episode, which I think you will get stacks of uh, tips and ideas from that you can go and implement in your, in, in your own business. So on that note, we shall say goodbye and look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we welcome a review. And if you have any questions and like to get in touch with us, you can do that at the RJEN, RJEN, .co.uk website.